Welcome back to the room. Uh, we are concluding our, uh, our first half of the series that we've been in uh, through the book of Mark. And we have been through chapters 1 and we'll finish all the way through chapter 8 today. And then we'll pause that series and uh, in a few weeks we'll start uh, with the book of Jonah. And we're going to walk through Jonah over the winter. And then we'll pick up in Mark chapter 9 as we lead into the spring and into Easter next year. So if you've been following along through Mark, uh, we're going to leave with kind of a cliffhanger today. And, uh, and so you can, uh, we, you can anticipate coming back to Mark uh, next year. And then we will, we will finish that up uh, next year. But uh, in a few weeks, we start the book of Jonah. But today I want us to finish well uh, through the first part of our Mark series. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at the last four or five verses there. Mark 8, verses 34 through 38. There may be a Bible in the pew there. You can borrow and take one of those if you want. Uh, you can use your phone. It's also probably going to be on the screen if you don't have a paper Bible with you. And, uh, and so I'm going to ask you to turn there. And I'm going to ask Scott if you'll come up and read uh, our verse, our passage today. Mark chapter 8. Verses 34 through 38. Good morning. So Mark 8, 34 through 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. All right, thanks, Scott. Well, let's pray together and then we'll uh, hear this message. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that uh, as we all come together today, uh, that we are all just uh, one beggar to another seeking food. And we know that uh, food is your word and that you promise to speak to us by your Holy Spirit and that your spirit will be our teacher and our guide. Uh, so I thank you that we can sit uh, in pews together, broken as we are, each of us with different struggles and heartaches and fears and anxieties and worries and addictions. And all of us in different places can come together from different backgrounds. And yet we come uh, into one place to worship one God in the name of Jesus Christ and to hear your word. So I ask that you would take your word, that you would make it very clear to us today and that you would speak to us, that we may have understanding, that we may follow you more fully, and that we may know you more intimately, and that we would love you more deeply. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's our passage today, and it's really part three of a three-sermon series, and we'll get to that in just a second. But Jesus, in this passage, gives us a really clear definition of what it means to become a Christian. Uh, I went to college at a little school in Arkansas 
called Washita Baptist University. It's spelled Washita, O-U-A-C-H-I-T-A. If you looked at it, you would never say Washita. You would look at it and say, oh, you cheetah. And uh, so right away, going into college, I felt confused. Um, I wasn't sure going into this school. I hadn't planned on going to this school. I had enrolled at the University of Oklahoma. And then a week before classes started, I was going through rush week. And as a brand new believer uh, at the University of Oklahoma, and going into a fraternity, I saw all of the things that come with fraternity life. And in that moment, I decided I just can't do this. There's no way as a new believer I could do this. So I, I packed up a big trunk with all my stuff and I uh, got in the car the next day and I, I just said, hey, I'm here. Can I get in? <laughs> and I hadn't applied. I hadn't done anything. I had visited with their football coach uh, maybe seven or eight months before as an opportunity to play. And when I went in, I just, they accepted me, which is great. I mean, that's an important part of going to college um, is to be accepted, um, to be on campus legally. That's important. And, and as I went through, I started to think, what classes, what's my major going to be? What is my future job going to be? And so I'd always taken business classes in high school and had been a part of uh, FBLA, which is the Future Business Leaders of America. Uh, my mother worked for Hitachi America, and so I had a deal with uh, some of their Japanese CEOs that I could study abroad with them. And when some of those things didn't work out, I thought, well, I'll just continue to study business. I went into business and started to take some accounting classes, and I knew within a few weeks that I would never, ever, 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 <laughs> ever be an accountant. God bless you if you're an accountant. That's just not me. And so I started to think, well, what else can I do? And so I took some psychology classes and some sociology classes and counseling, and, and then I started to take some literature and English classes. And then finally, within six weeks, uh, sort of got into a different track altogether. But it took maybe a few months before the Lord called me into ministry. But with all those varieties of classes that I took, with every class, with every sort of new um, you know, textbook that I was wading through, what I found was on my desk were stacks and stacks of note cards with definitions. I realized that, that in any new field that I go into, I didn't understand any of the terminology. Have you ever tried to wade through a, a, a new field of study and all of a sudden you're reading through and you think, oh, I don't know what that means. And so you have a dictionary and you, you look up that word and then you get three or four words later and you say, oh, I don't know what that means. And my freshman year was difficult, all right? My first semester, I found myself in a dictionary and I had stacks and stacks of note cards on rings and I'm just trying to learn definitions and definitions and definitions just so I could read the first sort of introductory classes and it was good it was helpful but I had all of these definitions uh, and it was important to me I learned years later that this is sort of a new step in classical um, um, education is that anytime you want to understand something, you have to have these sort of pegs of understanding by understanding the terminology and the vocabulary. You're never going to get very far if you don't get past some of those definitions. It's very important. Um, this carries over in a lot of ways into our lives in some ways that uh, maybe a few years ago I was at this disciple-making church conference and, and one of the speakers, there were dozens of speakers all week long at all the seminars, but one of the keynote speakers, me and my friend Jeff were sitting um, in the chair and as they introduced him, they said, this guy has planted 20,000 churches 
in the state of California. And I thought, wow, I've planted two churches. And I mean, it just has taken everything I've got to try to get two churches sort of up and going. I can't imagine planting 20,000 churches. So I perked up a little bit. and I, I wondered, I just thought this guy's going to walk in and I mean, he's going to be like the Apostle Paul. I mean, I don't even know if the Apostle Paul planted 20,000 churches. This guy walked in and, and immediately started to talk about his church planting experience and all the things. And, and after a few minutes, I could tell that something was just off. Um, and, and the further, the longer he talked, the more I realized that he's defining a church in a very loose way. He, he said that a church, in my understanding, is just when any two people gather anywhere and read the Bible together. And that's what I've defined as a church. By those standards, I've probably planted 20,000 churches. I mean, anytime anybody gets together to read the Bible, that's called a church. It's a totally different understanding that I have of what a church is. But I realized in that moment that if you just kind of redefine, if you shift the goalposts, if you change, you can basically accomplish any goal that you want as long as you define the terms and as long as you have an understanding of, and you are the one who controls what it is. And if you can sort of change that, then you can basically make any claim that you want. And this this happens in our culture all the time. We were, we've come through this sort of cultural revolution that's happened over the last 40 or so years. If you feel like our culture has changed, um, then, then you're not alone. We've seen this sort of culture. And, and you've noticed that terms don't mean what they used to mean, right? We used to talk about things like tolerance. And tolerance used to mean that you and I can completely 100% disagree on a subject and at the end of the day, we can still be friends. Like we can still, it's okay if we disagree. That's what tolerance used to mean. But today, tolerance means this is what an issue is, and this is how it means. And if you don't believe that, then you're intolerant, and we don't accept you. And it's it's tolerant only within a certain sort of field, right? We see the shifting of definitions. We see a change of definitions about what marriage is. We see a change of definitions about where life starts. Used to start at conception is what our culture basically understood. And now it's sort of different. Now it's not um, all these sort of changes about marriage and about a baby in the womb and what is a male and a female. Everything is changing in our culture. And it starts with words and it starts with definitions. I promise I'm not here to rail on culture and be sort of some kind of cultural curmudgeon that's going to yell about all the changes. It's dizzying and it's real, but, but this is what I'm trying to point out. That if you're trying to change something or to accomplish something, it is a proven, clear strategy, tested strategy. It's a tactic to change the accepted definitions of words. If you really want to make a change, if you really want to accomplish a goal, you just clearly define what you're doing, or if something is already clearly defined, you can sort of shift that definition, and then you're able to accomplish something. The value of words is high. And the meaning that you say behind a word is high, right? It matters. It really does matter. And in this passage that we're sort of on the tail end of. Jesus has just begun, if you look back at verse 31, He just began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Himself, that Jesus would have to suffer 
Many things that he would be rejected by the elders. He would be rejected by the chief priests. He would be rejected by the scribes. And verse 31 says he would be killed. He just said that really clearly, really plainly. And then after um, three days, he rose again. Verse 32 says what I just said. He said this plainly is very clear. He just asked his disciples, who do you say I am? They said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And, and so then he taught them that he was going to have to suffer and die. Peter, Peter looks at him in verse 33. Verse 32, Peter looks at him and says, uh, begins to rebuke him. Peter's saying, you don't have to die. You don't have to die at all. Jesus, why would you die? We were, we're on the highest wave of popularity. We're seeing miracles. Everywhere we go, there are flocks and crowds and enormous numbers of people who love you. This is the opposite of what you're talking about. What we're experiencing is just sort of this wave of popularity and amazement, miracles and incredible things happening, great teaching, all these things. Why would Peter want to hear this? He doesn't want to hear it. He wants to redefine what Jesus is saying, this is what a Christian is. Peter is saying, you don't have to die. You can be a Messiah that doesn't die. You can basically be a Messiah uh, that doesn't suffer. You can be a Messiah that just teaches great things. You can be a Messiah that just uh, gathers crowds. Peter doesn't want him to be a dying Messiah, but Jesus, look at what Jesus does in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. This is my mission. This is where we're going. I have to suffer. I have to die. I have to go to the cross. And and I didn't come to be just sort of a popular, miracle, great teacher Jesus. I came to fulfill the messianic expectation of a suffering servant, a la Isaiah 53, Genesis 37 and above, where Joseph is a suffering sort of redeemer type, where Moses is in the desert for 40 years, and then he's now the sort of savior coming to redeem Israel. All these redeemer types that are fulfilling the role of what Jesus would become, they all suffered. So Jesus is just filling in that prophecy and becoming the suffering servant. Peter doesn't want that. Peter says, you don't have to be a cross-suffering Messiah. You can just be this popular Messiah. So Jesus is going to now define what a Christian is. And he's going to do this three times in the next three chapters. Eight through ten, Jesus predicts three times really clearly that he's going to die. He's taking his disciples on these road trips, five of them, in this sort of period. And in this period, he's taking them... Uh, outside of the nation of Israel, outside of this sort of defined boundary of messianic understanding. And he's taking the disciples from this sort of base in Sea of Galilee and he goes to Tyre and Sidon, way up here. Uh, Then he takes them over here to this side of the Decapolis. And then he's going to take them all to these different places outside of Israel. They're on their way right now to this very tip of this map here, uh, a place called Caesarea Philippi. All of this is just completely pagan Gentile territory. And Jesus is intentionally getting away from the huge crowds 
that are following him from all around the, the, the main central region of Israel. He's taking his disciples further out so he can define for them and clarify for them what it is a disciple, what it means to be a Christian, and what's coming next. This is roughly a year, nine months to a year before Jesus is going to be crucified. He's already spent about two years with his disciples ministering to crowds. Now he's huddling with his disciples and he's preparing them for what's next. And in this moment, he says... I have to go and suffer. And Peter says, no, you don't. (laughs) And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I do. I have to suffer. And then he's going to clarify what's coming next. He's clarifying what it means to be a disciple. So in verse 34, he calls the crowd to him. Not just the disciples, not just the apostles. The apostles were 12. The disciples were as many as 72, maybe up to 200 And then a crowd. So Jesus has a long, big group of people following him. And he calls them all together for this definition about what it means to be a Christian. Now, before we read what he says is a Christian, I want to help us understand why this is important. Because we also define what it means to be a Christian. We think we have some understanding of what it means to be a Christian. When I was 16... Um, I was, at that point in my life, had moved from being an atheist who hated Christians and who would sort of rip on Christians and was sort of an immoral guy, kind of a wild living guy, and had moved into sort of this place of apathyism. I don't know if you've ever heard the term apathyism. Uh, An atheist is someone who just doesn't believe in God. An agnostic is someone who believes there may or may not be a God um, and loosely defined. An apatheist is someone who just doesn't really care. They're apathetic about all things theistic. Okay? Some of you are kind of like that today. You don't care if there's a God or not. You don't see how it involves your life, what it matters, if it doesn't matter. You're just going to live your life, and if there's a God or if there isn't a God, you just don't care. Your focus is not there. And so you might think of yourself as an apatheist. And I was just there, but I was also sort of done. My way of life was not working for me in any way at all. I had a list of addictions, a list of problems, uh, and was a bit suicidal uh, at this point, and really did needed help. And so I prayed, asked God um, if he would save me, if he was real. And, and the next day, sort of after this prayer moment, a guy came to my door and said, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? I said, I don't know, but I've been thinking about death lately. And this guy walked me through the scriptures, showed me who Jesus was, what it meant to be forgiven of my sins, to uh, receive new life. And so right there, 1520 Pecan Street in Norman, Oklahoma, At 8.30 p.m., I prayed and gave my life to Jesus Christ, and it was just a life-changing moment. Now, over the course of the next year, I began to share what happened to me as the changes deep within that took place on that snowy night started to work their way out. I began to change, and people began to ask me, what's different about you? And I just said, you won't believe it, but this man came to my door, and he told me about Jesus. And once I put my faith in Jesus... Um, he began to answer my prayers and began to change me. And, and little by little, the addictions I had and the struggles I had and the immoralities I had and the anxieties I had and the lack of peace that I had and all the things that I was dealing with pre-Christ 
at the moment of salvation over the next nine months began to work themselves out to where I no longer had any of these issues and God had delivered me from all these things. Now, in the course of that year, I began to share that story with other people. And do you know what happened? People that I had been at parties with and people that I had been with in all these places, they would all say to me, yeah, we've, we've done that. I'm a Christian too. And this is when I prayed that prayer. And this is when I prayed. But their life bore no difference at all. There was no change in their life at all. And so I began to ask them, what do you mean you're a Christian? He said, well, this is their definition, by the way. This is what they would say. I was confirmed at this age. So I'm a Christian. That's how they would define what it means to be a Christian. Or another person I would witness to and tell, I was baptized when I was four or at birth. So I'm a Christian. Or my great-grandfather on my mom's side was a pastor. So I'm a Christian. Or I went to summer camp one year, and when the speaker said, you know, do you want to get saved and go to heaven? I raised my hand, so I'm a Christian. Or at another camp, I walked an aisle, and I met with somebody, and I felt all these sort of goosebumps, and and so I came back and made all these changes, and now i got a Bible, and it's bound in leather, and, and i got a zipper Bible and some highlighters, and so I'm a Christian. Or somebody else would say, yes, I prayed a prayer, and yes, I'm saved, and and God will always forgive me so I can just kind of live any way that I want to. So in all these ways, I began to think, there's some struggle with what it means to be a Christian. Is it a cultural thing? Is it a religious thing? Are we a Christian because we're from a Christian sort of worldview? What does it mean to be a Christian? What's the definition of a Christian? Well, people had this same problem with Jesus. They liked miracle Jesus, so maybe they called themselves a Christian. But we know that in John chapter 6, Jesus is clearly defining what it means to be a Christian. And at one point in John 6, it says at that point, many who followed him stopped following him altogether. They didn't want to follow him anymore. And Jesus turned around after defining what a Christian was and he saw people still following him and he said the words that we just sang a little while ago. He said, you guys don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter says the song we just sang, one of the lyrics, he didn't sing that song. Uh, He says one of the lyrics from that song, he says, where else can we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life and we have come to know and have believed that you are the Messiah, okay? Okay. So some people get it, what it means to be a Christian. Some don't. Jesus is constantly clarifying what it means to be a Christian. So I I want you to understand this. Because Jesus called the crowd. He called the disciples. He also called the apostles. They all came together in this clarifying moment. And this is what he says. Pay close attention. Calling the crowd to him, verse 34. With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let that person deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three commands and a paradox. The paradox is verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Then he shows you what that salvation is worth. So, all right, you with me? Three commands, a paradox. And now the value of a soul. 
What does it profit a person, a man, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then he talks about what does it mean for those who follow him, what it will look like for their whole lifetime. The one who is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus gives us a good definition in Mark right here. Three commands, a paradox, the value of a soul, and then what does that look like to be a Christian for a lifetime? So let's spend about 45 minutes on each of these segments. Three commands. The first command, meaning to be a Christian, is to deny yourself, right? You caught that. You saw it right there. It says to deny yourself. The, this, this word literally means to abandon. When Mark went on the mission trip with Paul and Barnabas and they got to the first island, they went to the island, what did Mark do? He went, he left, he abandoned them. This abandon yourself, this deny yourself is in line with what Jesus started teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. You remember those? And he says, blessed is the one who is poor in what? Poor in spirit, right? You got it. He's poor in spirit. This abandonment of yourself, this denial of yourself. The way we must understand this is that we operate... Listen close. If you have to look, these are scales and humanity operates on this understanding. All most religions sort of operate in this way that that if your good outweighs your bad, right, that when you die, your scales, if they tip just slightly in favor of I'm a little bit better than I am bad, (laughs) that God is going to be okay with me. This is called salvation by works. I do, so I'm accepted. If I were to ask you, what do you think God would say if He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? The majority of people, if you were to go around and poll your community or your family or your friends, just ask this question someday. The majority of them would say, I think He would let me in because I'm a good person. Everyone thinks that there is a level of goodness in their life that God will see And that their good works will merit for them salvation. But we know from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 that for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not by works. So that no one can... You guys are smart. You're not finishing my sermon for me. And I like that. Um, We know that it's not by works. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. None of us deserve it. We're all kind of one beggar and another beggar trying to find food and we found it in Jesus Christ. Not because we're deserving, not because we're good people, but because He is good. Amen? I mean, we didn't merit salvation. You won't look at my life and say, wow, what a great guy. God must really love him. He loves me on the basis of who Jesus is, not on the basis of who I am. He loves me, but he loves me, he loves me enough that he would send Jesus to die for me. And that's incredibly important. He loves you, he loves me, but we're not good enough to be saved. Poor in spirit is coming to the realization. Usually we call it rock bottom. <laughs> Usually we get to a point where we realize, I just can't do this. I can't be good enough. 
There's an emptiness in my life. There's a lack of peace. Everything I do, everything I try to find satisfaction or fulfillment or joy in life, everything that I look to to sort of make me feel right with God, none of those things help. And this sort of emptiness or this sort of life crisis where all of your bad decisions or all of your decisions have brought you to a place where you are not a very good leader of your own life. And that's a place of mercy. It's a place of grace. Rock bottom is good. Oftentimes, if someone asks me to pray for someone, one of my prayers for them is God help them to reach the end of themselves quickly. Because sometimes people take a long time and they cause a lot of pain and they cause a lot of wreckage and it takes a lot of struggle and difficulty before they get to rock bottom. And so my prayer is mercifully, God, help them get to the end of themselves quickly. Mercifully, help them get to the end of themselves quickly so they can be redeemed and find that you're a wonderful Savior who is willing to hear the prayer of a guy like me who cried out in a suicidal moment. If you're real, help me because I can't live like this. So I hit rock bottom. And so now I have behind me 30 years of sort of gospel fruitfulness behind me rather than it taking me another 20 years to hit rock bottom. See, some of you are are still digging, wondering if you're really at the bottom. And there, there may not be anywhere left to go, but hitting rock bottom is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's to deny yourself, to abandon yourself, to abandon all efforts at trying to tip the scales in your favor by works. Anything you think you have before Christ must be abandoned. Your plan for your life, your ambitions, your goals, your dreams, your hopes, your will, your pride is the least of all to surrender. The pride that says, I can do this. I can still handle it. Your life may be just a cluster dumpster fire, right? And you're just like, hey, it's not so bad in here. I still got this, right? Some of us need to understand what rock bottom is and understand it's time to take the loss, right? It's time to just Say, I give up, I surrender. And that's what it means to deny yourself, to abandon all hopes that you can save yourself. And to live that way from this point forward, from the moment of salvation onward, that there is nothing good in and of my flesh. If you don't believe me, just listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Paul says, I have a lot of reason for confidence in my flesh. That is, in myself before Christ, I had a lot of good things going. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That makes him a eighth day righteous Hebrew. He was of the people of Israel. That's God's chosen people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's where the king came from, right? The first king. Uh, He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning if you had to stack all the righteousness up, he was at the top of it. As to the law of Pharisee, that means of all the different sects, and groups within Israel, he was of the most righteous. And of the most righteous group, he was the most, most righteous of the most righteous group. Right? Then he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. I was so zealous for God and for righteousness that anyone who said they were a Christian, I grabbed them. When Stephen was murdered and everyone stood around with stones to throw at him, I was like, yes, get him. 
He drugged people into prison. He was even contributing to these murderers. He was uh, persecuted of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul had a lot going for him. But then he says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I must count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see that? He's saying my soul is of such eternal value to God that were I to gain everything and the whole world, it was nothing compared to gaining Christ. So that's the first thing is you have to come to a place of denial, of abandonment, of a rock bottom where you're willing to say, I can't do this. I need to surrender. The second thing he says is to take up his cross. That's the second part of this definition. And this doesn't need a lot of explanation. Everybody knew what a cross was then. Here it's been 2,000 years and we know what a cross is. This was a torture device, right? And Jews knew what this meant. But this is the first time Jesus is introducing the notion of cross in connection to being a Christian. A Christian who carries a cross. That's not new to us. We, you, probably 50% of the people in the room have some sort of cross on their body right now, right? This cross, we have an understanding. What do you mean? That's where people are crucified. But, but it was a nasty, bloody thing. There were as many as 30,000 Jews crucified by the Roman army, by the occupying government of Israel. They would crucify criminals. They would crucify uh, rebels. They would crucify anyone who didn't bow the knee to Caesar and was causing sort of this public um, issue. Any issue they caused, Rome could crucify you. And, and you know how they would do it. They would have these vertical beams that were often stationary in places where they were crucified. Sometimes if there weren't stationary or if it was a mass crucifixion, they would make you carry a cross. They would plant it in the ground, nailing you to it, and you would die by asphyxiation, dehydration, and just basically shock and bleeding out over a period of days. Uh, sometimes you would just have to carry the 100-pound horizontal beam that they would strap you to and they would hook that to the already um, put in the ground vertical beam. So when Jesus told his disciples, this is what it means to be a Christian, you have to take up your cross. That would have raised some eyebrows. I don't know that I want to be crucified, but let me just make a clarification. Jesus is not saying that all Christians will be crucified. Isn't that good? Yes, that's good, right? You don't have to be a crucified person to be a Christian. But he is saying that if my end was crucifixion, that you have to be willing to go with me through whatever suffering takes you to the point of possibly losing your life. That's the price of following me. That you would stand for me when no one else will. And this is why Jesus told his followers, you need to count the cost. How many of you will go to war if you know that they have 20,000 more troops than you have? You won't go. How many of you will build a house if you only have so much money and the house you want to build is this much money? He's saying count the cost. What it means to be a follower of me is that you would follow me to the point that you would be willing to die. In 2005, I became an evangelist. 
Part of my role as an evangelist was to go into churches and to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to teach them how to do evangelism, to teach them how to go on mission trips. And, and during that time, um, I was speaking in a lot of churches. And as I was being invited by churches, I would go and define the gospel and help them understand what it means to be a Christian and then help them know how to communicate what it means to be a Christian. I was invited to a lot of places and some of them were um, on, uh, in other countries and I published an article in the, the state paper in Louisville um, about being invited to First Baptist Church of Baghdad, Iraq. Now, there is no First Baptist Church of Baghdad. I mean, but the idea was that if I got invited to preach at a church like that, that it would have real cost to me. At the time, in 2005, during the height of this sort of war that was going on there, that if I went... As someone who's going to declare the gospel publicly, it would have been likely the last sermon I preached, right? And that whole article sort of teased out the idea of what it means to be willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because I was taking all these invitations to speak in places where I was welcomed and where people wanted to hear what I wanted to say. But what if God called me to preach the gospel in a hostile environment? Would I be willing And the whole article was about, would I be willing to go to a hard place to share the gospel if it was going to cost me my life? And for us, the definition of what it means to be a Christian is you have to come to rock bottom and deny yourself and all your efforts, abandon all efforts itself and surrender completely to Christ. The second thing it means, you have to be willing to follow Jesus no matter what it will cost you. Some of you at that point would be willing to walk out of the room right now and say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. The third thing he says is to follow me. And this is the idea of just going where he leads you by faith. That there is a perpetual yes on your lips. That should he lead you to um, go to a certain place, you would say yes. By faith, yes. Do I want to go there? Probably wouldn't have chosen that. But yes is the answer. Uh, It's the idea that you will follow in obedience to Jesus wherever he takes you. By faith and obedience that he, will, um, uh, that he will lead you in that way. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. And we all want that because we understand the benefits of being a Christian. You get eternal life in heaven, right? You get all of your sins forgiven. You get the Holy Spirit living within you. You are no longer working for salvation Um, I'm just generally following the outline of Ephesians 1. You're adopted as sons and daughters of the king. You're brought into his family. You have an inheritance that will never uh, perish, spoil, or fade. You have peace in this lifetime that doesn't depend on your circumstances. Uh, You have provision. You have all of these wonderful blessings of what it means to be. You have fellowship with your creator, unhindered. At any moment, Hebrews says, you can go into his presence with confidence. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering you. If it was storming outside and I wanted to be covered from the rain, if I put up an umbrella and it sheltered me from the storm, Jesus' righteousness covers you like that. It shelters you from the storm of wrath. On the day of judgment, Revelation 20 says that when all the books are opened and everybody's works are brought before God and he opens the book and he finds your name and he sees the works that you've done, he says that if you're in Christ, your name is written in a different book. And in that book, you 
you skip the whole judgment thing because you understand that Jesus took your judgment for you on the cross. And so you skip the whole discipline part of judgment day, which is kind of nice, right? It's kind of a big deal for us to be in Christ. But what will it cost you? It'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything in this life if you are willing to surrender it to Him. To take up your cross and to follow Him. He promises to be with you, to have His presence with you. Because your soul is worth it. He says in verse 36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will you give in exchange for your soul? What if you had the whole world? What if you had a private helicopter out back? And if you didn't like the sermon, you could just get up, walk out, fly to the Bahamas. And if you didn't like the weather there, you could just fly to Greece or something. Or if you didn't like that, you could just go skiing in Switzerland. Or if you just had all the money in the world and all the relationships in the world and all the power in the world, at the end of that, you would not be able to trade that in on Judgment Day for your soul. So you could gain everything and lose your soul for eternity. Psalms say that he has put eternity in the hearts of us in his creation. We all have this understanding that we're going to live forever. Solomon's experience in Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11 says, I became great. I surpassed everyone who was ever before me in Jerusalem. It's a humble guy, Solomon. Uh, Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, he says, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. Whatever I wanted, I just took. (laughs) I kept my heart from no pleasure. All the human experiences that he wanted, he just said yes to. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. And then I considered everything that everything that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all worthless. It was like striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, you could have the whole world, and it wouldn't be enough. It just wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't satisfy you. It wouldn't satisfy you at all. In 2005, Tom Brady was interviewed by 60 Minutes correspondent Steve Croft. You might remember this interview. He just won three Super Bowls. He's won five, I think, to date. And in this six, somebody else said, some Patriots fan somewhere, get out of here, right? We don't like your kind here. Tom Brady has basically what every dude in the room would consider everything, right? Plenty of money. He's a handsome fella, right? He's got an amazing quarterback arm, a long career in the NFL. He just has a lot that the world has to offer. And so in this moment, listen to what he said. He says, at times, when I'm not the person that I want to be, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. This is everything. You've got what it is. I've reached my goal. I've reached my dream. I've reached my life goals. And me, I think, God, there has to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what life is all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. What else is there for me? 
And the announcer, the interviewer, Steve Croft, says, what's the answer? Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I mean, that's a guy who has the world. And then you'll find somebody else, a believer in Christ who has nothing, a martyr. Someone who is imprisoned for their faith. Someone who has no worldly possessions. And they say, all I have is Christ and he is enough. He's the all-sufficient provider of everything that I need and I willingly will be glad to lay down my life because I have everything. How did you get to that point when you can say, take it all, take all my possessions, take everything I have, take all my money, take all my freedoms, take it all, and as long as I have Jesus Christ, He's enough. That's what Jesus says is all it takes for you to be a Christian. For too long, we've changed the definition. To be a Christian means to live any way you want, and you have this sort of safety net of forgiveness. It's not a Christian. A Christ follower is someone who denies themselves, they've hit rock bottom, cried out to the Lord in repentance and faith. It's a person who takes up their cross, though it may not take them to martyrdom, it will cost you something. And you have to be willing to say yes. And the third thing is a Christian is someone who says, I will follow you wherever you lead me by faith. So Father, thank you for helping us to understand what it means to know you and to follow you. And forgive us for ways that we've made salvation cheap and easy, as though it were as simple as walking an aisle and saying a magic prayer. Help us to come to a place where we acknowledge the cost. And when in faith and repentance we're willing to say yes, where else can we go? Though others may turn, we will continue. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus, I thank you that today I can stand here having followed you for almost 30 years. That up to this point, it has cost me something. It has not cost me everything. Others in the room will say it has cost me something to carry this cross. But where else can I go? No one else satisfies my soul like you do. So I thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the Christ followers in this room. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would raise up believers who know you and love you and who are willing to follow you wherever you go. And may it be for your glory and for your majesty. And may this be a church made up of not perfect people, not moral people or righteous people, sold out followers of Jesus Christ who are willing to go to the ends of the earth with a cross on their back. Would you make it so in my life? And would you make it so in our lives? For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.